Our Father, we do come to you as your people, and we do ask that as we open your word and prepare to hear these testimonies and to follow you in obedience in the hearing of these testimonies in the waters of baptism, that you would so unfold to us your word and help us to understand the meaning of this sign, and particularly as we connect it to our concluding thoughts on the issue of church discipline, what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, what it means to have been placed within your body to bear your name as your people for your glory. So as we consider these things the next few moments, be our teacher, Holy Spirit. Exalt Christ, which is your ministry, to the glory of God the Father. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it is appropriate that we would finish our look at the topic of church discipline and the passage of Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, which we'll do quickly this morning, but we will uh, wrap it up. And uh, we'll run through uh, some parts more quickly than I would want to, as you know, but uh, we do want to continue to look at our, the churches in Revelation uh, when we come back to it in just a, a couple of weeks. And so you just remember that we will be next week, uh, Pastor Tim, and then the following week will take us back to Genesis, and then on the 14th uh, we'll begin our look, at, uh, jump back into the churches of Revelation and consider them. But it is appropriate, again, that we would finish our look at the topic of church discipline on the night, morning that we have baptisms. Baptisms are, or baptism is, a public declaration of faith in Christ, of identity with the risen Christ, the crucified and the risen Christ. It's symbolic of our union with Him, of our spiritual union with Him by the Holy Spirit. It is a public symbol of being engrafted into the body of Christ, of being numbered with His people, of being identified with those who profess the name of Christ. That's what baptism is. It is an outward picture of what the Spirit does at salvation in spirit baptism. That's what Paul referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, when he said, By one spirit we were all baptized into one body. It's what happens at the moment of salvation. Water baptism is a public declaration of that, a sign and a symbol. The church then, as we've noted, is made up of those who profess faith in Christ and give evidence of the sovereign and supernatural work of regeneration in their heart. And they gather together because of that work to worship Christ, to exalt his name again as the people of God. And so this brings us then to the final part of the call to holiness as the body of believers, as a body of Christians that's laid out for us in Matthew 18 the instructions of the Lord on how to deal with sin among the body. How to deal with sin among the body. Particularly, how to deal with sin where there is a lack of repentance on the sinning member. Let's begin just by reminding ourselves of this section together. So we'll read it, verse 15 through 20, and then we'll look at the last part of it. Then. Beginning in verse 15. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth 
shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst." And so these are the instructions of the Lord, and we've already spent some time looking at preliminary matters. In other words, what is the very nature and the purpose of church discipline? It is to, for the church, the body of Christ, the professing believers in Christ, to discipline herself unto holiness. It is ultimately to the end of the glory of God, to the good of the saints, because sin brings death. Those who are obedient, it brings life and peace. Those who walk consistently with righteousness, it brings the blessing of God. Those who walk walk in opposition to God's word in hostility of mine it brings his judgment and so it is a way to pursue the glory of God it is a way to pursue the joy of God's people and it is how the church protects her witness to the world when the church does not deal with sin and when the church adopts the patterns and practices and thinking of the world and does not stand out as distinct then she loses her salt she is no longer light to the world and she was no longer a witness to Christ and we saw the way that God punctuated that at particular moments in redemptive history particularly at the establishment of the tabernacle after the exodus at the entrance into the land of Canaan with Achan and at the establishment of the church in Acts chapter 5 God accentuated each of those key moments in the life of his redemptive work or his unfolding of his redemptive purposes with a reminder that God takes his holiness seriously that he will not tolerate sin among his people. And so that is the overarching idea here behind the instructions of the Lord. And then he gets specific. And so we looked at that. We are to go then as we walk life, walk with light in life together, as we are together encouraging one another to pursue holiness and warning against the deceitfulness of sin. As the writer of Hebrews says that we are to go to one another. So in verse 15, you go to your brother who sins. We are to go in private and we are to seek winning our brother back to the way of righteousness. Well, we've spent some time on that. But let's look this morning at the last uh, steps in the last part of this section. And we move here then to steps two and three, and that is public confrontation. So there's the, first there is private confrontation, and now there is public confrontation. And so he says in verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And now he's ratcheting up then the, the pressure that is to be put on an unrepentant member of the church. Now, before we look at that specifically, let me note two things. First, the spiritual presuppositions behind these command and the legal prescriptions. So the spiritual presuppositions and the legal prescriptions that are behind the instructions of the Lord. Some of this we've looked at, but let me just uh, make it by way of reminder. First of all, the spiritual presuppositions. The spiritual presupposition. What, is the, what are the spiritual realities that are presupposed by the Lord in this whole process? And the first is this, that everybody who identifies with Christ and is recognized as a member of his church has experienced the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That's the presupposition. Let's consider that first, regeneration. There is the assumption of regeneration. 
Our natural condition, as we know, coming into this world is of spiritual death. And spiritual death means merely that we have within us no desire or spiritual capacity to respond to God as he is revealed in the person of Christ and in his word. An unbeliever hears about Christ, hears the word of Christ, and there is no interest. The natural man does not understand the things of the spiritual of God. There is no conviction of sin. There is no desire to worship. There is no conscience that is bound to obedience to Christ and to love him with a whole heart, whole mind, and soul. You simply make up your ideas and we went along. We walked, as Paul said, according to the course of this world. We were dead in trespasses and sin. But at salvation, as he continues in that passage, we were made alive together with Christ. Made alive together with Christ. That is regeneration. It is a sovereign work of God in which he implants in the sinner a new reality of life that gives new eyes to see God's nature. And in seeing God as he is, there is the feeling of our own sin, our own corruption, our own guilt. And there is also the ability then to see Christ in his person and his work as the means of salvation and reconciliation to God. And so regeneration is attended with repentant faith, a turning to Christ, a turning of the whole life to trust in Christ. That then produces a love for righteousness, a love for the brethren, a hatred of sin, and a new sphere of spiritual reality. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, you know these words, he is a new creature. Behold, old things have passed away and all things have become new. You are a new person, a new creature in that situation. And the evidence of that is it produces in the sinner who had no delight in the word of God, no particular care about the word of God or scripture, it produces in them a delight in the word of God. As Paul uh, David said in Psalm 1, they delight in the law of God, they delight in the truth of God, they delight of going to that place where God is revealed and considering him and learning of him. It produces in God's people a submission to that word, a desire to walk in obedience. It produces in God's people a love for Jesus and his people. John said this in his epistle, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome and that is the evidence of his seed abiding in you and of being born again. It produces a desire for fellowship and for worship. Jesus said the Father seeks those who will worship in spirit and in truth and it produces a break with the love of and the power of sin in the believer's life. It doesn't mean perfection but it means sin is no longer the dominating ruling reality in a believer's life. So behind these instructions, it presupposes a person has experienced regeneration. Secondly, it presupposes that the Holy Spirit indwells this individual. Not only does the new nature oppose sin, but so does the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, when someone is born again, it produces repentant faith. There's union with Christ. There's being sealed by the Spirit. And there's also the indwelling of the Spirit. Paul said, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So there is no such thing as a Christian who does not, has not experienced a new birth and is, in, is not indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul describes the work of the Holy Spirit in this way in Galatians 5.17. The Spirit sets its desires against the flesh and the flesh against the Spirit so that you may not do the things that you please. That means negatively that a ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a genuine believer is to oppose sin. It is to oppose sin. That's what his ministry is. Positively, it is to produce in them and compel them and move them towards the path of righteousness and obedience in Christ. That is Paul's point. There, and all of that flowing out of a genuine trust in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We noted before that he said, 
Anybody who believes another gospel has been severed from Christ, and Christ is of no benefit to them. But those who are in Christ know this reality, this working of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if a believer is to remain in sin, he or she must continue to resist the inner working of the Spirit against that sin in their life. And that's what's being presupposed here. They must intentionally and actively ignore the conflict that rages within their own heart and their own conscience. Now, we've noted before, often we go to Psalm 32, which is David's prayer and expression of what he experienced in both the forgiveness of his sin when he sinned against Bathsheba and also a reminder to walk with the Lord in blessedness, to walk with him faithfully and don't bring his discipline. But I want to take you to another place, Psalm 38, also a psalm of David that talks about what he experiences when in sin. Now, we don't know the context here of what sin he's talking about, but just listen, we understand clearly what he's expressing in terms of his feeling. He says this, O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, chasten me not in your burning anger. Your arrows have sunk deep into me. Your hand is pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over, greatly bowed down, mourning all day long. My loins are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. I'm benumbed, badly crushed I groan because of the agitation of my heart and he goes on that is the experience of a believer who has sinned and has unrepentant sin there is an an internal misery as we have said oftentimes the greatest evidence of salvation isn't always the marker of you know how much someone externally sins or doesn't sin it is their attitude toward that sin It happens many times in counseling situations where someone comes in and someone there is either one who is professed to be the one who's really in sin who needs the help and the one who's more or less bringing that accusation. And very often things get flipped. And you realize that one bringing it really demonstrates very often sometimes a heart of self-righteousness. Now this isn't always. We're talking about just when this happens. In other words, they may be externally less sinning less And yet their heart attitude towards sin is not one of brokenness, not one of being bent toward the will of God, not one of being sensitive to their own sin, but just sensitive in pointing out the other person's sin. And then the one who actually may be externally being doing worse in terms of obedience, but they're broken, they're struggling, they feel the weight of it, they are striving toward holiness. Who would you have more confidence as a believer? The one who's wrestling. The one who's struggling, because that is the work of regeneration. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so here it is that the the senses behind this, it's presupposed that that this believer is struggling with sin, and the more opposition that comes, then the greater will be the weight and the feeling of that sin, and it will move them towards repentance. The assumption is that the Holy Spirit is also pursuing them both internally and externally through means, such as these steps. It then goes to the legal prescription. A legal prescription. That's the spiritual presupposition. And the legal prescription is this. He says, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now, again, we're just going through all of this quickly, but let me note a few points here. 
In addition to the spiritual presuppositions, there is within this context, as there is throughout Scripture, a legal prescription. There is a legal understanding. In other words, what is uh, being built up here is mounting evidence against the sinning believer. Again, not to condemn them, but to bring them to conviction so that they will turn back and be restored to the body and be forgiven and once again know the blessing of God. But in order to do that, there needs to be a ratcheting up of the conviction. And so that's what's going on here. So note first the prescription for witnesses. He says, take one or two more with you. Now witnesses, as we know from our own legal context, and any legal context really, play a key role in these kind of proceedings. And the greater number of witnesses, and the more credible those witnesses, the greater the evidence against that person. The greater the evidence against them, and the greater affirmation of their offense. Here, the additional witnesses are meant to confirm both the reality of this sin and the refusal to repent. Now, this is a well-established principle that's laid down initially within the Mosaic law, in terms of explicitly in terms of law, in Deuteronomy 19.15. He says this, A single witness shall not rise up against the man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to walk through all of these passages, but that is a consistent application, a principle that's consistently applied in legal proceedings in the matter of evidence, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and in the New Testament, even in a variety of contexts. Just for illustration, and again, I'm not going to go through these passages. But let me mention the way that Paul applies this principle in 2 Corinthians 13.1. Remember that in 2 Corinthians, he is addressing a sinning church. He's continually having to deal with their disobedience and calling them back to repentance. He says this uh, in his second letter in verse chapter 13. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time and they're now absent, I may say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Now there he's applying that as an apostle and saying each one of my visits, this now being the third visit, acts as a witness against you, a witness of the sin of which some of you have not repented. Therefore, when I come, it will no longer be simply a call to repentance, but it will be to bring the discipline of the Lord for those who remain hardened in their heart and refusing to listen to the Lord's instruction. Well, examples like that could be multiplied over and over. The point here is simply that that is an established principle within Scripture by God's own design. That two or three witnesses are meant to increase the evidence, to bring conviction. Note, secondly, then, the purpose of the witnesses. The purpose of the witnesses. And again, because... As already noted, the purpose is that it, it will ratchet up the conviction. It will leave that, that one who's being accused without excuse so that they will be made to face the reality of their disobedience and again be brought to repentance. I would notice, note on this point simply this, that no time frame is given. No time frame is given. Uh, it takes wisdom, it takes prayer, which I'll mention at the end. It takes a, the, a knowledge of the particular circumstances, the one who's being accused, and so on, to know how long this process should take. Sometimes it's quick, sometimes it may be expanded over weeks and months as they're continually working with someone. No time frame is given. It is a matter of wisdom. Again, the nature of the sin and the dynamics of the situation call for the Lord's guidance. But note thirdly here, then, the proper choice of witnesses. He says, take one or two with you. 
One or two. And let me again, let me just make some observations. One, it is necessary that, is it, well, let me ask the question, is it necessary that the witnesses observed this particular sin? And the answer to that would be there's no indication that they do. It's no indication that they had, that they observed this particular sin. And we'll add to that in the next point. However, the more knowledge that a person has of the person being accused, and for that matter, the accuser, and the situation at large, then the better, obviously. But note secondly, I would note secondly, that because of the crucial, crucial nature of the witnesses, it is important that they are chosen wisely. Not just any person will do. They must be those who are credible, respected, who demonstrate godliness, and who are committed to the task. And we, we imply there, inferred that from Galatians 6 last week, that you who are spiritual, go to a sinning brother to restore them, but be ready to bear the burden of that as well. And so these witnesses must be credible. They must themselves have a testimony of integrity and spirituality, spiritual maturity that can go and bring the pressure to this person. So there is the purpose, which is to increase the conviction. There is the need to have greater evidence, which is the number of one or two. There's the proper choice of the witnesses. And there's another reason for taking these witnesses, and that is for protection. Protection for both the accused and the accuser. For the accused, it's protection because it may turn out that the accuser is unnecessarily pursuing the other brother. It could be that the one who's actually initially bringing the accusation is, in fact, the one who is wrong, the one who is misreading the situation. Uh, in the words, let me just give you a, a couple of well-said comments on that. One noted this, the reason for the witness is to potentially confront the one bringing the allegation if it is shown that he is forcing an issue where there is none. In other words, they might go and these other witnesses who observe it go, you know, really, I don't think there's anything here. I think you're making a big deal out of this. And one other noticed that. He said, if, if, the, if the, the accuser fails in his private attempt, this is a quote, he must then ask one or two persons of sound judgment to go. And they may find out when they go that they're making a, and this is a quote, a, a mountain out of a molehill. So it's a matter of protection. It's a matter of protection for the accused to make sure that it's handled well, to make sure that it is, in fact, a legitimate accusation. But it's also protection for the accuser and the, accu and the witnesses. It's a protection for them because they now have multiple witnesses to how it was handled and how the accused responded. And so this is an important means of protection. It's, it's a matter of wisdom. It's a matter of considering all of the angles. It is a matter of making sure that this process is followed through with integrity. With integrity. Now let me make one final matter. Or note one final thing. While not directly mentioned in this passage, the rest of the New Testament, after the coming of the Spirit, the writing of the epistles, establishes the New Testament office of elders. And the implication here is that as it begins getting ratcheted up, not every brother and sister going in private to another brother and sister, but as it is getting ratcheted up, as witnesses are being involved, as the implications and the consequences of a failure to repent become more significant and more serious, the assumption, the, the implication here is, is that the leadership of the church is also becoming involved in this and maybe even being chosen as those who will go as a witness. And the reason for this is that it is well established that the ultimate responsibility and accountability for the spiritual well-being of the members of the church are those who are uh, tasked with the office of eldership. 
Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. They, they then are ultimately the ones who will give an account to the spiritual well-being and the happenings of the church, of the body, of those who are placed under their care. That said, however, the ongoing confrontation and addressing the sin is a normal part of the body life. It doesn't mean that the elders at this point are necessarily involved in it in any way. They can or may not be. But it does mean that as it gets more serious, the leadership of the church uh, needs to be made aware. And if it goes to the next step, then they certainly are the ones that need to deal with this before the, the church gathered. So we go to step three. We go to step three. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or more two with you, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. This is now the third step. By saying, tell it to the church, he is referring to the body of believers in a local congregation. This person is then recognized as a member of the community of saints. Now, it is important to recognize as well that at this point, this sinning member is still recognized as a Christian. They're still recognized as a Christian. They are still recognized as a brother or sister who is in Christ. They are not yet treated as outside of Christ or outside of the communion of saints. So this is ratcheting getting close to that point, but it hasn't yet reached that point. And so on this, let me make just a few observations. First... It's assuming then that this person, this sinning brother or sister, is a part of the community of God's people. That is, that he openly participates in the corporate life of the church. To reach this step, it is difficult, you might even say impossible, to do so when a person has no real commitment to a local body. People who float around from one congregation to the next, staying only as long as that church is meeting their felt needs, or those who show up for service but have no real involvement in the life of the church, no real involvement with interpersonal relationships, no real involvement with what God is doing among the body, it would be very difficult to follow this through with them. This is the importance of having a commitment to the local church. You can imagine with some people, their name could be read before the congregation and everybody or most everybody would say, who is that? Who are they even talking about? I never even met them. I don't even know them. And so there is the assumption here that this person then is a known member of the community of God's people. And I, just as a footnote here, would note this is contrary to the spirit of this age on a couple of points. One is that salvation is viewed almost completely individualistically and we've, we've noted this many times it's like me and my walk with Jesus me and my own walk with Jesus I can be a part of a church or not it doesn't really matter I get fed any way I want I can watch some sermons on the internet I may show up for a service they may have an event I like but there's no commitment and there's no accountability to that body that is antithetical to biblical Christianity and to the nature of the church to the very reality of the church as a spiritual organism as the body of Christ united to him and of course to every other instruction that is given in the New Testament, and for that matter, even the, the concept of the covenant uh, with Israel in the Old Testament, but particularly even in the New Testament. So this stands in contrast, as we've noted. If you have, for example, within church growth movements and, and like kind of movements where they design the whole service around unbelievers, how much sense would it even make to do this in that kind of context? So the church is for believers. Unbelievers are invited to come. They are invited to hear the gospel. They are invited to participate in whatever they can in order to hear the preaching of the word and so forth. But they are not a part of the church. They should feel very uncomfortable long term being among God's people. 
They should constantly realize, I don't have what they have. I don't love the things that they love. I don't live the way that they live. So that's a footnote to this. The church, then, is the environment by God's design where spiritual growth takes place. And that is then implicit then, or it is important then, for each person to be a part of that body in a significant way. In a way that actually brings a proper amount of accountability. And that would lead to this second point I would just note. That he is not only committed to a local body, he's publicly recognized as being a part of the community of God's people. In other words, a key element of the accountability that comes in church discipline is church membership. As a matter of fact, after the Reformation period, there was a different circumstance before that, but after the Reformation period, it was uh, church discipline was established as a mark of a true church, those who were inside and those who were outside. The public recognition of belonging to a local assembly is essential to a church discipline. Membership is not about voting rights or the opportunity to be up front or to serve in certain ministries. It is a public, at its heart, it is a public affirmation by that local body of that person's credible testimony of faith in Christ. It is a public recognition of them in that body with all the responsibilities that they have to that body, the accountability to that body, as well as the privileges of being served by that body and their soul cared for. That is what at the heart of public or formal membership is. It's also important because it distinguishes unbelievers. It's not uncommon that unbelievers will regularly attend a service for a variety of reasons. So if they're not publicly recognized, if somebody isn't, if there's been no affirmation of faith, then there's not an affirmation that that person is even a believer. And very often there couldn't be because they're not. And so church discipline then would be, seem an odd thing. It, would, it has no real teeth for that person. So it's important then, in order for this to take place, it's seen as important by many churches and us as well, that there is some kind of public recognition of those who are inside and outside of the church and of the body of believers. Finally, if there is no movement toward repentance, and I know we're going fast, but we have to get through this. If there's no, still no repentance, then there's step four, and that's public confirmation of expulsion or excommunication. Public confirmation of expulsion or excommunication. He says, if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That means they are no longer to be recognized as a regenerate, spirit-indwelt member of the body of Christ. They are to be recognized as somebody outside of the kingdom of God, outside of the saving purposes of God, outside of the gathered community of God's people. There's to be a clear inside outside distinction he says let them be to you as a gentile or a tax collector and again that's captured in the word excommunicated which is simply to say removed or put out of the community or the communion of God's people now this is an extremely grievous and serious step but it's crucial for the purity and the witness of the church and the good of the sinning member The idea is that this person who is remaining unrepentant in sin needs to feel the full weight of their lack of repentance. They need to feel it. They need to know the pressure. They need to realize that this isn't a game, that there are consequences for the choices that they are making, and that's the idea here. But even beyond that, it is to protect the purity of the church. It is to protect the purity of the church. Using just one passage... 
uh, that we've looked at, I'm just going to mention a few phrases out of it, where Paul had to deal with this kind of situation where the church at Corinth was not dealing with sin. You remember it well in 1 Corinthians 5. Listen to the ways that he describes it. In verse 2 of chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, The sinning member should be removed from your midst. In verse 7, 7 he says, You are to clean out the leaven. In verse 13, he says, Remove the wicked man from yourselves. In other words, get it out. Why? Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sin undealt with festers and it permeates and it begins to move through the body. And he says, we have to deal with this. We have to deal with this. In 1 Timothy 5.20, Paul refers to church discipline as handing them over to Satan, putting them outside of the spiritual protection and blessing of God's people. Now then he says, they are to be to you then as a Gentile and a tax collector. Again, that is unsaved, unregenerate. They are to be recognized outside of the saving realities of Christ. It does not mean we are, they are enemies. Quite the opposite. It simply means that they are to be pursued as an unbeliever with the gospel. Throughout the gospel, we see that Jesus was the friend of the tax collector and the Gentiles and of sinners. And so it is to be with the church. But it means this, that they are no longer treated as a Christian. They're no longer treated as a Christian. Now let me end then with just a few observations. A few observations here. And again, we're, I'm not going to say much about them. They're just a little more than stating them. First of all is this. This is, as we noted at the very beginning of this series, this is not an ultimate determination of the person's salvation. We are to understand that person as not demonstrating the fruit of the reality of salvation. But ultimately, all we can say is they give no evidence of being a believer and God instructs us to treat them that way. The, the, absolute, or the ultimate destination of that person is left up to God. He alone knows the fullness of the heart. He alone knows that. But it is to say the church has a responsibility to say they are not acting like a believer and we will not treat them as a believer. Because they are walking in unrepentant sin. It is to say this, that that person who is disciplined out of a church because of unrepentant sin has no biblical reason to have confidence in their salvation. First John 1.8 says, if we do not confess our sin, we, we're deceiving ourselves. We are liars. We're liars. He says, it's not the one who says I have come to know him, but the one who keeps his commandments that demonstrates that they have experienced the regenerating work of God. We are to walk in the light, he says, as he is in the light. That is how we know and have assurance that we have come to know him. And so anybody who has experienced this has no reason to be assured of their salvation. And it would be right for this person to fear eternal punishment and the real possibility of being those who are mentioned by Christ himself as well in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things? And he'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. I never knew you. And so that is a very real threat and a very real possibility for those who remain in unrepentant sin. But that is for the Lord ultimately to determine we are simply to go by the fruit of their lives in obedience to Christ. Second observation. This is a mandate to seek their salvation. That means all subsequent interaction needs to contain the element of calling them to repentance and to believe the gospel. They are now an object of evangelism. 
They are now, this person, an object of being called to repentant faith in Christ. What that means then is that as a Christian, you don't just hang out, have coffee, play golf, or anything else as if nothing happened. You cannot continue normal relationships with them as you did when they were in the church. It means now all of your interaction, all of your relating to them as the body of Christ is to call them back to faith in Christ into obedience to Christ, to trust in Christ, to know the blessing and the forgiveness of Christ. That is the the heart of the interaction with them. Thirdly, a third observation. If we do not deal with sin among our midst, and we already noted this, and this is what uh, instigated this whole series, is that Christ will. That's all of Christ's messages to the churches, or at least five of the seven. If you don't deal with sin, I will deal with sin. And so we need to do it in obedience to Christ. Number four. Observe in verse 18. He says, And truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In other words, simply put, it is this. This is an affirmation that is whatever is decided righteously and obediently before God and according to Scripture and with the right heart reflects the will of God in heaven, and it comes with his authority mediated through the church. Now, we can't develop this, but this goes back to Matthew 16, 19, and it's related even to the keys of the kingdom given to Peter, and he uses the same language in John 20 and other places. But the point here is simply to say this, that when the church is acting consistently with Scripture, consistently with the Word of God, that it comes, their decision comes with the affirmation of heaven itself, and it is reflecting the will of God towards that member and fifthly and lastly on these observations verse 19 through 20 he says this and he's reaffirming this again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask it shall be done for them by my father who is in heaven whose will is being demonstrated in this for where two or three have gathered in my name I am there in their midst let me just say briefly this is not a promise for every Wednesday night prayer meeting it's not a formal formula for God to answer all of our prayers like it really ratchets, it, ratchets up the pressure on God to answer our prayers. It has nothing to do with Christ's words here. It's simply saying this, that where these witnesses and these others are gathered for the purpose of discipline, God's presence is uniquely there to affirm that decision. It means he is uniquely present to hear their prayers for wisdom and for guidance in how to handle this situation and that he is uniquely there with his own authority mediated through the church to affirm the decision of the church and that we can rely on him to lead in that whole process. That's the idea. That's the idea. It's a reaffirmation that the decision of the church and those involved as witnesses come with the authority and reflect the will of God. Finally then, let me note one other here. And then restoration. And we want to end with this because this is the ultimate, this is the ultimate end. And it's significant that immediately following this passage, in verse 21 through the end of the chapter, we have this extended uh, parable given in response to a question of Peter about the nature of forgiveness. About the nature of forgiveness. Because that's ultimately the goal. If the sinning member, even after being excluded, does return and does repent, it's necessary that the church forgive them and reaffirm their love for him as a believer in Christ. I've mentioned this passage. Let me just um, mention it briefly. 
I, I don't want to skip it. He says this. Now, this is a, a, the, a sinning member who Paul confronted. He was later restored. He, re, he had repented of his sin. And then he gives instructions to the church. Now, the church would tended to want to be at, hold this person then at arm's length. Kind of hold them a little while. Ah, are you really repentant? Are you really, are you really sorry for your sin? And Paul says to them, no, 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 no. Don't do that. That's exactly the opposite of what you should do as a church. Rather, you should reaffirm your love for him. You reaffirm him as a brother and accept them. Listen to his words. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, mm, he says in verse 8, wherefore I urge you, oh well, let me go back up. He says sufficient, verse 6, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. That is that they, they confronted him and they put him out. He says in verse 7, so that for the purpose then, on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Later, he says, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan because we are not ignorant of his schemes. What does Satan want to do? He wants to cause division, factions, hardness. And what would ultimately also be being displayed in that kind of situation is self-righteousness. As if that, those who are excluding him don't also need the grace of God in their own life and the forgiveness of sin. And he says, no, that's not how the church operates. You have received forgiveness. Extend forgiveness to this person. Reaffirm them. Give no opportunity for Satan to work bitterness and unforgiveness and pride in the heart of the people. But rather show him to be accepted again and love him. It is reflecting then in chapter 18, verse 13 of Matthew, of God's own heart over those who repent. He says he rejoices over it. He rejoices over it. So in conclusion, let me just say this. Church discipline then is essential to our love for one another, for our spiritual growth, and for our witness to the world. That's why he gave the instructions. It is an integral part of the Lord's call in Matthew 5 to be light and salt. And it is what we confine ourselves to or consign ourselves to and is pictured even the, the initial stage of being a part of the body of Christ in the waters of baptism. So in these waters and in this testimony and obedience to the symbol that the Lord himself has established for his people, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it is saying that these individuals are publicly declaring, I belong to Christ. I have been called by Christ. I have believed Christ. I belong to Christ totally in the, all of my person. I want to follow him. I yield to his word. I trust in him alone. I follow him alone. He defines right and wrong and reality and unreality for everything as the creator of all things, the redeemer of all things, the ruler of all things. And I want my life to be a reflection of his glory. And I am a part of the people of God. And by saying that publicly, I'm also acknowledging that as a part of the people of God, I am accountable to the people of God. And we are together seeking to walk in holiness and obedience and truth. And so that is the idea of it. And may we rejoice in that as we hear these testimonies. So let me pray and then uh, we'll get to them. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Your word comes with all the authority of heaven. It reflects your own nature. It is bound to your own name. You said that you have exalted your word to your own name. And so when you speak, we listen. And you speak with all authority and you speak sufficiently for every area of life, everything necessary for life and godliness, for us to know you, to know how to walk with you, and to have encouragement and wisdom in this world. 
And that is no less true in the issue of church discipline. But undergirding all of this is a love for you, Christ, and a love for one another. Because we delight to walk in the truth. And we delight to help one another to know the joy and the blessings of salvation. And so that, may that be our heart. May that be our goal. And when these situations do arise, may we do it with your authority, yes. But may we do it with your tender character. May we do it with your humility. May we do it with patience. May we do it with grief when there's lack of repentance. And may we do it always seeking the restoration of those who are outside of your will. To this end, we ask your help. And now, Lord, may we be encouraged to hear of these testimonies of your grace in the life of these three individuals. May you be exalted. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.